Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're watching the news here in 2022, it is very hard not to feel like absolutely everything has hit rock bottom. However, as they say, you can be the change. The one thing you can change is yourself. And that is why by heading to British-Boxers.com, you can buy an array of excellently comfy underwear, casual wear and PJs to make sure your derriere is very unrock-like in any way. I mean, you know, unless you want it to be through like years and years of hench squats and stuff like that. And then in which case, you can at least put your slab butt in nice pants because... Hey, it probably needs a rest with your hectic workout schedule and watching the news at the same time. British boxers are ethical pioneers of affordable luxury and also will not remotely judge or indeed ask for the granite quality of your rear when you order. Even better, if when you're at checkout you use the code PARPOLBRO, then you'll get a sweet 15% off whatever you buy. British-boxers.com because you may as well sit comfortably on your rubble bubble while watching absolutely everything else collapse. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that, like the Tory leadership candidates, says it will run a positive campaign, but sadly contains nothing that's recognised as viral content. I'm Tina Duyebin this week, as it's now clear that by early September, the United Kingdom will either be led by Rishi, my idol is Batman, but you know, if he didn't do any of the saving people bit, Sunak, or Liz, if I don't think about it at all times, I forget I have a head, trust. I would like to clearly state, and in fact so would the podcast, that the best option for the country is now if we all jump up and down at the same time, until the entire island sinks. Imagine an athletics race, if you will, you know, say a 10,000 metre one, uh, and one where none of the contenders taking place are anyone the public would like to have running. You know, say their fave runner, or even someone who'd ever run before, or heard of running before, or seen it in a film, or read about it in a book. Instead, on the track, were several contenders who'd spent their entire lives trying to destroy the concept of running wherever they could, and only holding races for their friends or those who paid the most. They all wore highly inappropriate and expensive footwear, refused to put their sponsors on their vests, and as they threw themselves into the tarmac and flailed their arms like a distraught squid, they'd scream about how they were the best to do the running, and how they were the best thing for the future of running, and actually, the best thing that could happen to running was to send everyone who wasn't white to Rwanda. If it was a horse race and the last two horses went round in circles just screaming, I've got the best ways to make sure most of you would be poor and die, they'd likely be taken away and put down. And yet, 
with the Tory leadership race is pretty much the same thing with exactly those qualities in play and somehow it's still going ahead. Being completely unsuitable for the job they're hoping to gain and acting despotic in a way that you aren't sure if we should be terrified or be recommending they're sectioned immediately or more likely both at exactly the same time. There are two possible future residents of Number 10 Downing Street left, assuming the last one has been able to be evicted in time and they haven't had to start leaving plates of meat and young interns in a trail out of the door to lure him away. So, who are the final two? Well, it's a choice between a multi-millionaire Mr Bean the early years, whose big hits so far have been encouraging people to die for £10 off of Nando's, telling everyone to go to work in the middle of a pandemic so they could die, giving nowhere near enough adequate support to people during a pandemic so they might die, giving nowhere near enough support to the NHS so people die, and losing £11 billion and living in a different country entirely. Or the other choice is a flip-flopping version of one of those inflatable suits that makes it look like you're sitting on top of an emu but without a rider, who encourage people to go and fight against Russia so they could die, only gets passionate about pork markets but not as a euphemism which kind of ruins it, and is able to get lost within a room. With a choice like that, you'd kind of think it'd be time to call the whole thing off and start again from the very beginning of time, you know, before humanity even existed. But the thing is... The people who lead the charge into oblivion is decided on entirely by an incredibly small amount of the population, the Conservative Party membership. And of course, the big issue around that is most of them are really big fans of new ways to make sure nearly all the rest of us either become their slaves, fuck off or die. Currently, as we enter what feels like week 4 billion and 12 of the Tory leadership campaign, but is somehow only week 3, the competition between Sunak and Truss has already passed through various stages of trumping each other with policies, none of which are anything any real human being would actually want. Truss wants to cut everything in sight, like a toddler with a pair of scissors for the very first time. She's proposed about £30 billion of cuts, with a mix of ones, like um, removing the recent national insurance hike, and that would be good, but then that's body slammed into the ground by her also not raising corporation tax, tax cuts for businesses, because I think you'll find it's the ones with the most money who are really struggling right now, and cutting the green levy, because why help the planet while it's currently on fire? I mean, it's obviously too late to bother, right? What a waste. And those cuts will all be paid for by the Covid debt being spread over a longer period, which I think might work if they only have to pay it back once Covid is actually over, so you know, circa 2135. These cut proposals have pissed off many, many Tories who don't think tax cuts should happen until inflation is dealt with, but Liz Truss is adamant it's the way forward because she's been advised by collapsed Barry Norman, Patrick Minford, a man who's only knowledgeable in how to be economical with the truth or any correct predictions at all. Minford is mostly well known for backing the poll tax, saying that Brexit would boost the country's GDP and currently thinks inflation should be higher, which I suppose would lead to many people losing their homes and being unable to afford to eat. But then that could be very popular with the Conservative voters who have so many homes that they could lose a few and then have enough money they'd never have to worry about that sort of thing as they could just pay to eat their least needed butlers. On the other side, Rishi Sunak has said he won't cut taxes until we've gripped inflation, which I'm pretty sure is a sex to his wife. He said there should be radical reforms to how businesses are taxed, but he hasn't said what any of them are, so I'm guessing large businesses he's friends with, or has investments with, or his wife owns won't pay any, and small businesses will have to pay 100% tax to make up for it, to punish them for somehow surviving the pandemic despite all of his efforts. Rishi Sunak wants to eliminate one-year NHS waiting times by 2024, so I expect he'll be aiming for three- to four-year ones instead, or maybe he'll destroy the NHS entirely so there's no waiting times at all. 
Sunak says from day one he's going to put the country on a crisis footing, though I didn't think we'd had our feet anywhere else since around 2016. Everything has felt unstable since then, and as though at any moment we might just all fall over. Though at least then I suppose we could lie down and just wait for the end. Is Sunak now going to stop funding the ground? Is that his next plan? Screw potholes, let's have more sinkholes for Britain so we can all be on proper crisis footing. I mean, to be fair, if there was ever a time for the earth to swallow its whole, it's now. So fair play, Sunak. I might be backing you on this one. Liz Truss has announced a bonfire of EU laws that we kept after Brexit, even though most of them are because of international law. Now, if she does actually take away those regulations, she won't need a bonfire as most of our buildings will be endlessly ablaze due to a dismantling of safety protocols. All the EU regulations we still have have been checked and deemed worth keeping. So which ones will Trust get rid of? Maybe just all of them and then without rules no one can ever be hindered by health and safety regulations ever again. And yes, once more, it'll make it easier for you all to die. I mean, why pander to the idiot lefty woke radicals who want to get through a few months of their life without mass risk from food poisoning, their home collapsing in on them or all of their town being submerged in water, 50% of which is shit and piss. It's not just British people they want to kill off, though. Sunak and Truss have been trying to trump each other and, yes, I mean again, act like an overly sunburnt hemorrhoid former US president by pledging to fully implement sending refugees to Rwanda and reduce immigration. Sunak says he'll do whatever it takes to get the plan off the ground and will seek other partnerships with other countries until, I presume, he's got rid of absolutely everyone out of Britain, including his immigrant family that he's so very proud of. Maybe all those campaign videos he released about them were just to reassure the Conservative membership that, yes, they too should go, and maybe it was a kind of like Tinder advert for other countries that may want them. And of course, when Rishi Sunak's all done and he's the last person in Britain, apart from some inbred Tory families in Middle England and all of the 4,000 children of someone had an anal prolapse onto a Zorb ball, Boris Johnson, Sunak will also then have himself taken away. Trust says she's determined to get the Rwanda policy working and wouldn't cower to the European Convention of Human Rights, because why would she when that's only there to protect humans, who she mostly seems to want to kill off? The Rwandan government have said they're happy to continue the scheme of the UK sending them people that don't deserve to go there and really don't want to, but they can only take 200 of them. So with the fee that's been paid to them, that's approximately £600,000 per person that the UK is spending breaching human rights, not including the costs are end of actually getting them on a plane. For that money, I mean, you could really punish people for seeking asylum and keep them in the UK, buy them a flat and make them have to stay here and still have money left over to give them a proper tour of all our failing hospitals, overcrowded schools and rivers full of turds. Awkwardly for both Truss and Sunak, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Human Rights has ruled that the Home Office must reconsider the Rwanda deal as it isn't safe and it may break the law. But I guess both of those values seem to be key tick boxes to things that the two leadership candidates really want the government to uphold. Sunak gave the lobby a little care pack to follow him on the road. They included the world's smallest can of Sprite, a Factor 30 sun cream and one finger of Twix. Nothing says how stingy he's going to be as Prime Minister, quite like the fact he can't even be asked to pay for them to have a full-size Twix. I mean, it's in the fucking name. It's a Twix. It's not a Wunks, is it? Maybe he's assuming the piss-poor Factor 30 sun cream and lack of liquid in a fun-sized Sprite will mean they pass out from the constant heat waves before they get to do any reporting anyway, so it wasn't really worth the outlay. Sunak has also been boasting about his time in government, saying that he flew home from an overseas trip just to stop a Christmas lockdown last December. Another way of saying that, though, is I did extra killing of the planet just to make sure more people could die. Truss has been boosting her profile by saying she thought Boris Johnson should have stayed as Prime Minister, a generally unpopular thought, but then after seeing the possibilities of this leadership contest, that definitely could change. 
She told an interview with GB News, the station entirely created for people who don't know how to change channels on a television, that her favourite song is I Wanna Dance by Whitney Houston, which isn't what it's called. It's called I Wanna Dance with Somebody Who Loves Me. But I suppose if you include all the details, it goes from being a song that sounds happy to one about a wish to end loneliness. So it's very on brand for Trust to only mention the bit she thinks will sell it. Truss's own social media, as the final two were announced, seemed to suggest she was ready to hit the ground from day one, which sounds about right, and she probably meant face first. While Truss struggles to write coherent enough sentences to boost her profile, she's very lucky to have living crash test dummy Nadine Dorries on her side. Dorries tweeted that Truss will be travelling the country in earrings that cost circa £4.50, compared to Sunak, who's wearing a £3,500 suit. Sure, but I mean, Truss isn't only wearing those earrings, is she? I mean, if it's about whose clothes cost least, then shouldn't the naked rambler be Prime Minister? Not least because every time he stood at the podium, it'd hide his jangly bits. I don't know where a long, oh god, so long summer of all of this will lead, but I have a horrible feeling we're a week away from Sunak promising to bring back public corporate punishment, while Trust fires back by saying she'll personally stick a fork into the eyes of anyone she thinks isn't being patriotic enough because they're too poor to really love Britain. Truss is considerably in the lead with Conservative members in the polls, and I have to admit, I'd always said that Tories had no conviction and would do whatever they could to stay in power, but fair enough, here they are, proving that they absolutely won't stop being racist for anything. So we will likely have Prime Minister Truss in September, which sounds like a waking nightmare, but then so does Prime Minister Sunak, and perhaps we should take comfort in knowing that there is some certainty ahead, and that certainty is that the country is absolutely fucked. You know, again, but more so. I am, of course, being biased as I think they're both unbelievably dangerous fuckwits. However, I must admit that both candidates do have pros. I mean, Rishi Sunak has been great for Britain's international relations. And by that, of course, I mean his wife was registered as a non-dom for years. And I'm certain Liz Truss would get invited to all the big important global events because, you know, they're always in need of entertainment and watching her get lost in a room is far cheaper than a band. And perhaps by all their policies largely ending with the life expectancy of British people plummeting even further downwards, isn't that true equality? I mean, it won't just be people with disabilities and the most poor who die from hunger, pneumonia and neglect. It'll now be, well, most of us. And if that isn't bringing us all together, I don't know what is. Properly uniting the country. Or maybe the one real source of hope, actually, is that whatever they say between now and the announcement of who the winner is, we know that if they're a true Conservative Party leader with the values their members uphold, then they won't actually ever do any of their pledges anyway and just tell you they have while hoping absolutely no one asks for details. Boris Johnson attended his final PMQs last week, where he finished with the line Hasta la Vista Baby, though it's odd for the Prime Minister to associate himself with the Terminator when he's got quite so many kids. All the Conservative MPs gave him a standing ovation except former Prime Minister and stalactite Theresa May, which was taken as her slighting him, but could also be because the coordination of slapping her hands together to any sort of rhythm just isn't doable. Boris Johnson has since spent the last week doing what he does best. Uh, no, not turning up to things. The other thing he does best. No, not impregnating women he's not married to. The, the other thing. No, not drinking. Yeah, no, that one. That's right. Farting about in fancy dress, being a useless twat for photo opportunities. This time it was while visiting Ukrainian troops training in Yorkshire, where he dressed all in camo gear, but sadly we could still see him. The Ukrainian soldiers let him pose with all sorts of weapons and even throw a grenade, but sadly didn't ask him to count slowly to 100 after pulling the pin. Whatever happened to friendly fire, eh? There are times when it's really needed. Just under 2,000 Conservative members have written to the 1922 committee asking that Johnson is the third option on the Tory leadership ballot so that he can stay as PM. It is concerning, if unsurprising, that they think he can still lead Britain, and at the same time again looking at the other two options, this would be the first ever time Johnson wasn't the worst possible choice. 
This won't happen, but what may happen is the Prime Minister could be removed by a by-election, which would be triggered if the Privileges Committee finds him in breach of parliamentary standards for lying to everyone about Partygate one of the six billion times that he did that. That could cause a suspension of more than 10 days and then a by-election, or hopefully by-by-election. Though, of course, in reality, he'll be investigated by someone who's already promised to make Baron of Bumland or something, and it'll turn out that lying in Parliament if your name begins with a B and you do it on a Tuesday is perfectly valid. Over in the sad, desolate place that is opposition town, Labour leader and man so boring the fact that he's alive questions theories about existence, Keir Starmer, has been setting out the party mission. Which I think they're using in the religious way as they try to preach that what they've got means something when we can all see it's just their fevered imaginations and there's absolutely nothing there. They won't renationalise the rail, water or energy companies because, I mean, that'd be silly. I imagine all those things being affordable and actually efficient, then what kind of Britain would we be? That'd totally kill our global reputation. Instead, Labour will fight the next election on the promise of economic growth while also insisting that there is no magic money tree and somehow costing all their targets. Oh, wait, maybe it's a mission impossible. Or actually, maybe that is doable because they don't have any plans to change anything, so it'll be super cheap and therefore save the country billions. Starber has been doing interviews where he's done swears about Boris Johnson's show. Actually, he's really cool and he's not boring at all. He said bullshit. Oh, uh, he said he hated being investigated by police because, you know, that's usually what he makes them do to other people for taking one pair of trainers. And how the UK needs a reboot, which I agree with. But, you know, I mean, like entirely like replace all the cast and setting and script and anyone who had anything to do with the original at all. Though, I'll be fair, it was Starmer's idea so he can have a cameo as a background extra, not least because he'd blend in with a wall very easily. The one thing Starmer hasn't been talking much about, though, is the long overdue release of the Ford Report, which, no, isn't about which film is Harrison's best. I mean, it's obviously uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, But it's instead an inquiry into allegations of bullying, sexism, racism of specifically anti-black and Islamophobic nature, and factionalism in the Labour Party. Turns out there's loads of all that in there. I mean, who knew, right? Well, you know, apart from everyone in Labour uh, and all the people who've been talking about it online forever and lots of people saying, please, please investigate this and do something about it. The report said the party is operating a hierarchy of racism because it prioritises certain types over the others, depending on, you know, which brand helps them get rid of members they don't like. It also says the bureaucracy that continued at Labour HQ from the posh Millhouse, aka Miliband years, into the burdened Cribbins' tired cousin Corbyn years, were hostile to the new leader, were deliberately obstructive, which directly hindered the 2017 election, and they were rubbish at handling anti-Semitism, before saying that anti-Semitism was used as a factional weapon. Nothing like promising to tackle racism by thinking you can make it useful somehow, as though it's youth unemployment and you've just found an unpaid apprenticeship scheme that will save you tons of cash, while all the young people have to work on zero-hours contracts for absolutely nothing. A series of WhatsApps are revealed from the right-wing side of the party, where they discussed how to divert resources to undermine the leadership and protect the party from Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, it's weird to think how scared they were of someone who just makes his own jam. Was it the fear he'd smear it on the outside of their office and they'd get attacked by wasps? Or, you know, just that they'd have to adopt left-wing policies and pretend to actually like people more than money? Or, you know, arms deals? So far, the party leader has been pretty muted on this, but one of Starmer's spokespeople said he has made real progress in ridding the party of its destructive factionism. I mean, yes he has, by expelling one of the factions entirely. That's not unlike delivering a roadmap to peace that involves wiping out one side and that automatically stops the other one from wanting to fire at them. Still, with an inherent hierarchy of racism, sexism and bullying, it does mean that Labour really are ready to be in government. 
Drivers have been queuing down the M20 to Dover for between 4 to 40 hours over the last few days in a total traffic gridlock as tourists tried to escape to the continent for the summer holes. Who's to blame? Well, it's a little bit the sheer amounts of travellers escaping for summer holes, but it's mostly that post-Brexit passport checks take ages because they have to make sure you can only stay in the EU for a short amount of time. And that's because they're worried that after the Tory leadership challenge ends, many Brits will just sort of stay there and try and seek refuge. No, it's actually because we're a third country to the EU now. No, not third world. You'll have to wait till around October for that sort of qualification. It's also because the government rejected the Port of Dover's request for £33 million to fund infrastructure back in 2020, potentially because unfinished replicant Dominic Raab still doesn't entirely know what the channel is for and thought it was a load of money for one of those when GB News manages to run on a budget of a dog whistle and some despair. Many big Brexit fans have been blaming France for the delays though, saying that it's their fault they weren't properly prepared for a shit system and decision they had absolutely nothing to do with. I mean, and it is. It's rude, right? It's just rude. In the same way, if I binge drink and vomit all over you on the train, it's your fault that you didn't travel in a full wipeable hazmat suit just in case. It is weird for the somehow still Brexiteers to pass the blame though, when really, they should be embracing these delays as a Brexit benefit. I mean, what could be more British than queuing, right? We bloody love queuing, us Brits. And why on earth would you want to go to Europe anyway, right? Isn't that slagging off Britain, this wonderful country? Why wouldn't you want to just stay here? You could sit in a car on the M20 in Kent, aka the Garden of England, and look at all the wonders such as the hard shoulder, the lorry parks, and the multitude of bottles of lorry driver piss. Ah, glorious Britain. Just months after he criticised P&O ferries for their mistreatment and sudden firing of staff, Business Secretary and Fawful Kwasi Kwarteng has been singing the praises of the new law, meaning businesses can hire temp staff to replace striking workers. He said it was a criminal offence, but now it's an option for business. I mean, that definitely sells it to me, Quasi. I mean, why not make other criminal offences totally fine for businesses to do as well? What about sexual harassment? Oh, uh, corruption. Or would that mean they'd have to be classed as a political party? I know, what about animal cruelty or arson? I mean, why even have crimes anymore? Can't we just make them all business? Wouldn't that be best for the economy if nothing was a crime and it was all just business? Get rid of the prisons, replace them with hot desks and targets, but, you know, actual ones that they can help take out in order to help the stocks go up. Finally, I see our country's future, and it's one as a place in sci-fi films where the heroes have to land to make a deal with a bounty hunter and everyone double-crosses each other and it all goes horribly wrong. Still, on the plus side, we could all get really cool outfits. And lastly, the UK will host the 2023 Eurovision Song Contest. Great news, and a brilliant way to ensure that we win for once. As you know, all the other acts will have to spend the duration of the show trying to get through the queue at Passport Control. No, look, I don't hate myself enough to stay up late just to watch the last head-to-head between those two fucking horrendous people. So, you know, just so I can say that one of them said something even worse than they have already have done. Why, why would I do that? Why would anyone put themselves through a glimpse at exactly how awful the future dictated by a handful of people, mostly in Hampshire, how awful that future will be? I would have more fun sticking very large bees into my eyes, um, which wouldn't be very nice for the bees, so I wouldn't do that. But if those were the only two options, watch the leadership panel or stick bees in my eyes which under a trust or CNAC government probably will be the only two options then I would choose the bees that's all I'm saying how is you? did you survive the heatwave? are you going to go on holes or are you just sort of staying in the UK to sit in 12 hour long traffic queues and either melt or drown? Uh, I'm not sure which is the top hole options this year but probably best to pack the sun cream either way 
as of this weekend, I'm going to be at all the festivals uh, for the next month where I'm going to spend at least an hour thinking, yeah, this is brilliant fun, before realising, no, it's not. It never, ever is. I don't want to have to queue for toilets. I don't want to watch Sophie ellis Bexler do a kitchen disco that's not even in a kitchen or even in her kitchen at all. And, you know, realising if inflation has hit the food trucks, then it's probably going to be all of the fees I get from the gigs I'm doing there just to pay for a sandwich and some really watered-down beer. Win! Uh, I, of course, jest, because that is my job. Um, I'll be at both camp festivals, if you're at any of those. Then the Edinburgh Fringe for a week, mostly loitering. And then at the Big Festival, um, which I think is like a super, super Tory one on Alex James's farm. So my plan is to shout at children, eat all the cheese I can see, and then run away as quickly as possible. Um, I am. I'm looking forward to it. I'm, I'm quite excited to go to festivals again. I'm really excited about all this work that will then have to get spent on petrol and that one probably very disappointing sandwich. These are good times. Well done. 2022. So, obviously, uh, this is the last podcast uh, of these till September, as I take a short summer break to be disappointed at festivals. And of course, obviously, Parliament is on recess, and it's just going to be Trust and CMAX saying awful things to each other. So, uh, you know, obviously, I'll pop back if uh, those two candidates get so riled up with each other that they do a fight to the death. I'll definitely pop back for that. Otherwise, I'll make sure there's one of these for um, just after we crown the latest undeserving arsehole to ruin our lives. Promise uh, it will return in very early September. Um, thanks to Connell, Kofi supporter and Liz for the Kofi donations and to all you Patreon lot who, well, I suggested pausing the Patreon for August because I don't give you any extra shit and obviously that month I won't even be doing podcasts and, well, we're all out of cash. But on the poll, 100% of you kindly said I needed money to pay for £6 tubs of Lurpak too, so you were very happy for me not to pause it whatsoever. Thank you very much for that. Several of you fully typing out shut up and take my money Futurama gif brought me very much joy. Thank you so much for that. So, um, you know, if you're not on the Patreon and you want to be, why not join just so I don't do anything for a few weeks. Um, definitely don't release any podcasts at all. Uh, you can join there at patreon.com forward slash parpol bro, or you can contribute to my one festival sandwich at ko-fi.com forward slash parpol bro too, which is always, always appreciated. Right, uh, well, uh, have a lovely summer, but before that, I've got a well nice interview to finish off this little run. So, you know, get on that, eh? <laughs> 1-size-fits-all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
if you had the displeasure of living with me, uh, not only would you be very concerned by the sheer depth, quantity and tone of my levels of flatulence, usually around 9pm at night, but you'd also be unbelievably bored of my usual tirades about the state of culture in Britain. It's either me going on about how stupid it is that game shows used to feature normal everyday people getting a once in a lifetime chance to win a washing machine, dartboard or holiday to somewhere there's currently a war on. And yet now everyone, every single one of those shows is celebrities playing to win money for a charity they could already just give money to anyway because they're rich. But then it turns out they're too stupid to remember their own middle name for a final answer. So sorry, Burford orphans, you can't have any crisps this week. Oh, and buy my new book that was ghostwritten by a child in a basement. Or you switch the channel and it's yet another show where the worst, most boring of the Highlanders, Kevin MacLeod, finds people who hilariously have overspent on their huge mansion in the shape of Gwyneth Paltrow's anus. And now it'll just have to be half of her anus, but who knows how many millions they would have lost inside a whole one and how on earth would they have got it back? Or here's a cooking show where for every meal you'll need a kitchen the size of a football pitch, 400 different pans and herbs you have to hire a Sherpa to collect for you from the top of Everest. There is loads and loads of TV that is either for rich people or to make you aspire to be rich for your rented flat where your heating bill is about to be the same as paying for that washing machine you used to be able to win for free. Where have the stories without a kind of capitalist narrative or a must-make or already-have-money narrative gone? Aside from the odd film or gritty drama, it is pretty sparse out there. And as always, pretty obvious the left wing doesn't really have any control over culture like the government would have you believe, or it wouldn't cost the same as building Gwyneth Paltrow's anus to go to the theatre and every single artistic course wouldn't be getting cut from schools and universities. How do we change that though? How do we make culture for everyone again and bring stories back that change how people see the world and realise the stories they've been watching for ages are really shit? I mean, let's face it, in a proper story, Boris Johnson would have been beheaded by a prince by now, or at the very least been robbed by a famous archer. So as is tradition that's continually happened by accident on the show, the last interview before the summer break is a positive one. Yes, I had a lovely conversation with illustrator, art director and educator Phil Rigglesworth and pamphleteer, as he likes to be called, Colm Leith, about the recently published collection Left Cultures, containing accounts by many left-wingers across the arts, education and political sectors about what it was that influenced them and their politics. These are accompanied by beautiful pieces by some truly, truly amazing artists. And it is just, it's a fantastic collection. I must say, obviously, I'm a bit biased as I have written an entry in there, which I am very proud about. And David Biscup has done an absolutely incredible pick to go with it. But the whole thing is a truly beautiful and inspiring read with writers influences ranging from the more obvious and clear cut to seemingly random but clearly powerful events, books, places and more. And look, if you needed any more proof, it was great. Um, I heard uh, this week that because of a piece in there by the historian Alfie Steer and illustrated by Liam Barrett about the Sleaford mods, Jason Williamson grabbed himself a copy, which is pretty exciting. Um, so I asked Phil, who created the concept and Colm, who is in charge of the editorial direction of Left Cultures, all about why they put it together how storytelling can shape our politics and if there were any stories apart from mine obs that inspired them too enjoy this absolutely lovely chat with the two of them here you go Phil, Colm, it's, it's so lovely to have you on the podcast. And, and listen, I know I'm biased because I, I have written something for Left Cultures. But honestly, it's such a beautiful, beautiful collection. Um, and as all, all listeners know, I never get to read anything uh, because of my daughter. I shouldn't really blame her. That's really mean, isn't it? But um, but I, I have been dipping in to so many of the stories where I can. And I find it really inspiring, really moving. Um, I think it was Boff Wally's one I read the other night that I was just like, oh, that's really kind of revved me up. It's, uh, it's just it's fantastic. And the artwork is so beautiful so it's a fantastic collection um let's start with a really obvious question um but phil what inspired you to kind of put left cultures together um well we've been 
I guess like, you know, uh, I've been teaching in Bristol for 12 years, I think. And uh, throughout that time, I think me and Colin have spent an unhealthy amount of time sat in beer gardens in and around Bristol or by, you know, inside when it's raining, discussing left-wing politics and, and kind of, you know, we wouldn't have said it like this, but left cultures, you know, sharing books and sharing artists or designers or, or films and things. And I think like a lot of people who, you know, got a chance to reflect through COVID kind of said, you know, what is it I really want to do? You know, am I doing what I really want to do? Or have I just got into a kind of place where I'm just kind of creating what comes my way in, if you, if you will? Um, so it was the first kind of time we, after, you know, everybody were released back into the wilds. Um, and we went for a beer and I just kind of thought, you know, I kind of said to Carl, come on, instead of chatting about this, let's just, let's just, let's just put, put it into action. Let's see what we could do with it. So we kind of said, okay, right, we'll give, you, we'll give two weeks each to kind of come up with an idea and then we'll meet back and then we'll see what we've got and stuff. And uh, so I came up with two ideas and we met to discuss them. And I kind of said the first idea, which is left cultures. And Colin said, brilliant, we'll do that. I cannot for the life of remember what the second idea is, which I'd like to kind of <laughs> remember whether it was a good one. And then obviously, I mean, Colin didn't even kind of entertain putting one forward. It was just kind of, I don't know, maybe I don't know, maybe I, I don't know what Colin feels, but it kind of felt right, didn't it? It kind of felt like there was a seed of something that was, you know, kind of inclusive and celebratory, you know, that, uh, about the left, which, you know, perhaps the left doesn't really realise it's got a huge amount to celebrate as also, aside from obviously, you know, slagging off the Tories, which is a very good pastime for anybody to do. You know, so <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, I think, it, you know, we, 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 we're both very interested in that, I think, and, 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 and that's maybe why, where it came from, I think, if, it, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know about Colin, I don't know. I think, I think again, the thing, I think the, I think the pitch, you know, and when Phil was talking about it, and he was talking about it from a personal perspective, it just seemed like such a simple and direct story that lots of people could connect with because anybody, no matter what your position is, often can reflect back to the time in, where, in which you saw something that did something or went somewhere. And you thought, oh, yeah, that was a key pivotal moment in why I became uh, who I am. And I think that idea that, you know, where the left's got a really sort of strong tradition, what we haven't got maybe is, is the telling of those stories that sort of that, almost that, well, how did you get into this? How did you become like that? And actually, those are the things that sustain people's sort of creative careers all the way through. They go back to that sort of one moment in time. So I think it was just so simple and direct, and you just felt like it would resonate. It felt like a really human uh, human sort of question to ask people. It's, it, mm. it's, it's interesting, though, because you sort of called it left cultures, and to me, a lot of culture is left anyway like i just i mean probably uh generalizing but a lot of artists i meet are left a lot of actors i meet are left. you know it's, it seems to be if you're of that kind of creative mindset you generally kind of look for other possibilities for our future than, than that they're just earning money from from business and capital it doesn't really yeah. gel with yeah. that that mindset of doing something because you love it and, and you're creative and you know uh, one of the things um when we were talking that really struck stuck with me really was you sort of mentioned that you need you felt that an alternative vision needed was needed in current culture, which is very much how I feel because every everything's celebritized. It drives me it drives me nuts. You know, like you said, a lot of property shows. It's it's endlessly one kind of uh, viewpoint. A lot of our culture, um, and I mean, how how powerful do you think sort of storytelling can be? Why why do we need left stories to come back? Um. <clears throat> There's, um, I think there's a kind of, you know, a reasonably well-known um, 
anecdote around when Ken Loach made Kathy come home, Kathy comes home, um, where, you know, it got viewed and a lot of people wrote into the BBC and complained because they thought it was an actual documentary. But the viewing figures were massive and it kind of shifted the thought process of a lot of people around housing within Britain. And I think, like, you know, um, over time, the left have kind of shied away from big discussion points around, you know, kind of immigration and housing and, 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 and welfare and kowtowed you know, massively, uh, you know, especially in the political framework, you know, political arena. Whereas when you make a film about that or a song about that, you know, it kind of touches people maybe in a, little, a way that, um, you know, politics isn't doing and maybe can't do because it makes it really, really personal and human. You know, if you're talking about somebody that, you know, is struggling uh, to keep a roof over the red, but you show a story around it, it's kind of, you know, if you show somebody some data, that maybe doesn't actually touch them. But if you have something that they can engage with and really buy into a character, then it's kind of like, you know, it moves them in a different way. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> you probably kind of <laughs> a bit of a tangent, but... No, it, it, I mean, it does, it's, it's sort of... Um... Like, I don't know how you feel about Colin, but, you know, like, for me, like, I always think of how many stories I was brought up on were very left-wing in a point. I mean, even if you look at really stereotype ones, like Robin Hood was a left-wing hero, really. He was, you know, we, we had all these kind of stories about that's what a, a hero was compared to the stories now of people who are just, they they made a lot of, they've earned, you know, Steve Jobs is a hero because he earned yeah. a lot of money and exploiting people, you know. And I, I just wondered, um, you know, how, how you feel these kind of personal stories that you put together is is does that does that that must affect people kind of reading them that they know that this person has been switched on by these things and also you're kind of reading these stories where they're telling you what inspired them and what influenced them that's got to have a pretty powerful um kind of uh, what's the word and no Im- impact yeah, I think I mean also when you mentioned the idea of Robin I mean I suppose we always went for the underdog didn't they and the underdog was always tended to be sort of kind and generous you know, and community oriented. Whereas now, almost with those things, that the underdog is the person who comes up to make the most money. Yeah, or who becomes the most powerful person. So that narrative shifted quite a bit. And I think, I think the, the great thing about reading through these stories again is just that that sense of taking you back to the moment in time where somebody did something. And actually, I think sometimes the left have they have the sort of the dangerous stories. They've got the sort of the dirty stories, the sort of the naughty <laughs> stories. There's things that are a little bit on the wild, you know, they're a bit like, you know, or they've, you know, or they've, or they've had to sort of stand up to somebody. And I think, you know, they're not passive. Um, and I think, you know, that would, that, to me, when you read them, that's the, the quite amazing sort of approach to it. There is that emotional, you know, um, uh, sort of, so I suppose it's an emotional sort of attachment to that type of activity or reading that book or reading that song. It has actually moved people to do something, you know. Um, and I don't really know. I suppose it, we're, we're in such a dominant um, culture based around capital, aren't we? I mean, it's, it's the TV shows, but it's the ads. It's, the, you know, it's how wealthy can you be? How, you know, how good can your suntan be? You know, um, and while I think there are people making really great culture on the left still, it's certainly not dominant, and actually, every time it's done, it's sort of you know, it's you know, it 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 hits a sort of very sort of bad press, as it were, or it's on a very sort of weird time, or it's it's sort of demonised as being some sort of oh, it's it's just sort of left wing culture, ignore it, you know. Um, and I think it's it, I suppose in a way, it's a matter of, I mean, understanding I suppose how the media works or how you get those stories out, you know. And I suppose the next thing about a publication is it's a, again, it's a physical thing, isn't it? And the idea that you you're talking about dipping in and out to it. 
is a beautiful way of you know how we sort of read um and how we engage with culture like that it doesn't have to be some big you know theoretical text which i think sometimes the left is obsessed with theory you know um and actually we think that the left should be obsessed sometimes with just sort of pictures and mm. stories you know and the idea that you've got maybe um if you haven't got time to read but your daughter's there i mean you bet your daughter likes the pictures and she can probably tell what's happening in what you what, what you're reading by looking at that and i think that idea of mixing those because i mean in a way image making has has been hugely powerful you know in sort of either radical politics or you know socialist politics going up whether it's political banners or whether it's been well it's been pamphlets or comics and that idea of telling a story through that which actually connects to people you know often to people who maybe even couldn't read in the first place you know so they were just looking at images so i think that combination is is a, you know is a really good way to remind people mm. of that um i mean going back to your first question you know the question as well about like you know how powerful stories can be um i was watching a a program about um you know kind of a class in literature and they were kind of saying that um you know the welfare state was you know influenced massively by the ragged trousers of philanthropist you know yeah. so you kind of think you know that you know um robert trestle you know kind of which was his uh you know pen name you know died and was you know buried as a pauper but his legacy lived on and made a massive influence and impact on so many people's lives you know and kind of that is the power of storytelling that's made into kind of like you know kind of such an accessible thing and you know i mean um i don't get much time to read either and i kind of like listen to the audio book and things like that while i'm working away which is kind of you know kind of trying to do two jobs at once and you know there's like a there's like a scene in the and the ragged trousers which is like you know they're kind of selling off all the utility companies and there's one guy that's a socialist and they're all you know kind of ganging up on him in a way and they're all kind of, you know, they've all got, they're all after kind of their own sense of, you know, getting something out of it, getting a job at the end of it or getting some shares. And you just kind of think that is the labor pie, <laughs> you know, like, you know, these lords, you know, they're, they're in it for kind of getting what they can out of it. And, you know, it's, you know, then you've got the, the one guy who's getting overridden, which is, you kind of think, God, that was written so long ago, but it's so poignant today, like, and the same tricks are going on, you know, it's kind of trying to justify selling off you know, energy and water and, you know, you just think, God, it's it's depressing that, that that hasn't shifted, but it's important to keep flagging those things up. And, you know, quite often I think when people do flag them up, it's, you know, kind of they get 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 shut down. But if you make a story about it, it's it's more difficult really to kind of shut that argument down in a way. You know, it kind of, it, it lives on in a way that, that, that maybe, you know, other forms of debate and discussion don't quite do. Um, yeah, which is exciting. Phrase, I think, um, yeah. oh, sorry, Phil. I was going to say there's a phrase that I think uh, I've used far too many times on this on this podcast. Not a phrase, uh, a quote. But I, I went to see Harry Belafonte do a talk some years ago that's basically stuck with me forever. So I nearly wrote about this for your, for your thing. Yeah. But, but he, somebody in the audience asked him, you know, what effect does it have when people cut the arts? And he simply said that arts are the gateway to truth, and that arts are how people interpret the world around them, and uh, uh, you know, uh, I help to understand them. And you take them away, and suddenly people don't see what's happening and you know and i wondered is, is that is that part of the reason why the arts are being cut you know the, the access to the arts is very limited you know it's, it's very expensive uh, and a lot of the art institutions um don't have funding anymore you know how how dangerous do you think that that is 
Well, I mean, I, I think you're right. I mean, the access to education, you know, I mean, you, you need money for it. And if you do get, you know, whatever, you get a full grant or a full bursary to get yourself here, you need money to survive. So in the end, in terms of a sort of student perspective, it's only the wealthy students who've got the time to create. So, you know, if you haven't got that, if you haven't got that, if you haven't got the wealth, you haven't got the time. And then if those people who have got the time have the wealth, they then they create the culture, they become the dominant. And actually, you could say that there's quite a lot of students who would who would have money, who would be able to pay for it, who would maybe consider themselves to be, you know, on the left. But actually, through the process in which they're undertaking, they move predominantly, I would say, towards the right. So I think there's a lot of people, you know, who are creating culture who would say, you know, they're maybe on the left, but when you analyzed it a little bit more, you know, that's very moved very much towards the center and maybe even towards a, a very soft right type approach because it's very hard for them to sort of reflect on how they've had that advantage over somebody else. Um, so I think once you once you start doing that and also the demands that come with that, you know, you become a consumer, you have a level of expectation. I've paid this, so I expect to get that. And that, again, waters down another complete level of sort of critique and criticism um, and debate. You know, because they're just presenting, I, I expect this to be correct. I've paid for it, so it should be right, and you should like it, and this is what it's going to be. Um, and I think we've, we we find that quite a bit, that idea that, you know, the, the critique and the dialogue around those subjects is becoming harder, um, and it becomes dominated by the by the wealthy. And I think it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a fantastic tactic, mm. isn't it, if you want to get rid of those sort of voices. Um, you know, historical art schools were normally found, you know, full of sort of students who technically probably couldn't do much else you know, they just like doing a bit of art, so send them to art school. Um, and, you know, if you, and if you look at the history of sort of, you know, a lot of culture, as you said, they're coming up through art schools, whether it's bands, writers, photographers, whatever, people, filmmakers. Um, so it's it's interesting to see what that shift will happen, what be, that will be like in, you know, in sort of 10, 15 years on the back of people paying so much mm. money for it. I think. Well, we wanted, we wanted it to be, you know, like, a, you know, I, I don't know if you'd say how you describe it, but... We wanted there to be an option for students to kind of look at and kind of go, actually, why why am I kind of like being pressured into doing this when my passion is over here? Mm. And, you know, by getting people, you know, contributors who are, you know, 50, 51 there is, who are creating culture on the left there, it kind of says, look, this is possible. You know, you don't have to kind of like say, okay, I've just got to go and do this stuff over here for, you know, this corporation, which I don't agree with. Um, so that's one, one of the reasons why we think the, the publication itself is quite useful in you know kind of showing that because i think that gets shut out a little bit the thing about doing this is that you know researching people uh, or creative create uh, culture creators on the, on the left yeah once you get looking for people there's so many around like it's like you know it's kind of really you think heck, you're doing that you're doing this you're doing that that's brilliant like you know and kind of it opens up this box of people that are out there doing stuff the second thing I would say about the arts cuts and things like that is, you know, the left have always had, you know, if you look in the left, a lot of activists use their skills that they practice in their daily life and they have to make a living and they have to engage in, you know, want a better word, capitalist society. But outside, they engage those skills in things that they want to, they want to make the world a better place. And one of the things I kind of have been thinking for quite a while is, that, uh, that maybe has been kind of denigrated, devalued over time through, you know, monetization of, of creativity. Um, and, you know, if we can get illustrators and designers to start to engage in those kind of, you know, uh, projects and take those skills across and say, look, I'm donating my skill set to you, 
I'm going to make this project you're doing look amazing. And therefore, you're kind of taking the skills that capitalism are using and, and putting billions of pounds in for advertising to kind of sell quite often useless products that are convincing us to use them. You're taking that skill set and putting it over there, then you're creating a counterbalance. And, you know, kind of they probably would actually do a better job because they maybe have more autonomy, more passion for it. And, you know, you're starting to kind of like try and encourage those skill sets to go and do that. And, you know, I mean, I do that for myself and I predominantly do that. You know, I'm kind of at the point where I don't even care if I get paid. I'd prefer to illustrate a book about, you know, an anti-fascist book. You know, like I just prefer to do it because it's, you know, you're saying something you want to say. And so we, we want that to be an encouragement there. And and, and that level of kind of, um, to answer your question in a way, is a, a level of, uh, you're bypassing art cuts. You're not relying on institutions. Mm. You're kind of going, I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to go and help out. And, and, and that's what we'd like to encourage a little bit as well through the, through the book to kind of encourage that. You know, so you've got 51 pairings, you know, and it's kind of, you know, what's great from your reaction, um, Kenan, is that you've got in touch with Dave and Dave's in touch with you and you're kind of having a conversation. Where that goes, who knows? But, like, you know, it's the start of a conversation between a culture creator and an illustrator, you know, so that's what we want to encourage. We won't call it creative matchmaking, but we maybe call it like that. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's, it's, that, it's interesting you say, um, I, I don't know if you've heard of the charity called Arts Emergency. They're, they're fantastic, run by comedian Josie Long. Um, and, uh, oh, now I'm going to get in terrible trouble. Neil, I can't remember Neil's surname right now. Um, but they run by, and, and they help children who are in, well, kids who are in college and who, uh, who want to, pursue arts but their educational facilities don't allow it or they can't afford to do it and they pair them off with people in the arts who, who care and it it very much is that it, it is creating community of isn't it but that's that's quite hard like you, you've had this you know you had this brilliant idea and you found 51 artists 51 contributors but it, it is i suppose it's us finding a way to reach each other um and how do you where do you even start with that how did you even start with it for for the collection I think we wanted, I think we really, you know, we wanted a, a really broad, you know, demographic of culture creation, you know, and like, you know, for me, it was, you know, I'm not just saying this because on your podcast, but it was quite important that we had a comedian on there, you know, on the roster, um, because, you know, we, you know, comedy is a great way of touching people and it's a great way of giving messages across. And, you know, we, we wanted it, you know, it would have been, you know, there are some, th- you know, theorists that, uh, you know, were, were spoken about or, or, or contributed. But we didn't want it to be kind of a dry kind of you know academic mm. thing. We wanted it to be you know a broad range of creativity. So we were kind of you know not that we put it into boxes or anything. And there's there's loads of areas that we didn't touch on. But we we genuinely tried to make it so it were kind of covered a lot of bases and and touched on things that people perhaps maybe didn't think. Well, that's a left wing kind of way of doing something like. You know, an ex-student of ours, Niall, kind of wrote about his hitchhiking kind of stuff. I mean, it was, you know, and the reason why I contacted him is because I was kind of walking away from college and we walked over this uh, railway bridge uh, when, you know, when he was still a student. And he said, and this freight train came underneath. And he said, I just wish I'd have done like a, jumped on that train and done a project of, you know, going on the train. I was just like, why didn't you do it? And he's just, I thought, no, you know, because he kind of, got sucked into this i've got to make a living out of it mm. you know and and subsequently you know he's really into hitchhiking and seeing where he wants to go and and, and taking the serendipity road and you know you kind of 
you remember that stuff. It's a great idea to document, like, you know, what it is to kind of jump on a train and, you know, hitchhike on, on the freight trains and stuff. And, the, you know, in the kind of culture of, you know, the, the, the American road trip and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you kind of, we wanted it to be really broad on those kind of you know, points of culture, I think. I think it's also really exciting trying to find people. You know, because we went out looking and you always have a few sort of like, base, you know, oh, I've heard of what about trying these sort of five people or whatever. But actually, when you actually start looking at it, and I think we I think we sort of think we do this quite a bit, especially probably, you know, well, you know, through Instagram or Twitter or whatever. We're connected with lots of other people. But I think when you actually have to go and approach people, you know, and you have to think, oh, am I going to frame this to them? And why am I going to say? I'm coming to you to do this or to ask you to do it. You have to spend a bit more time doing it. You know, it's not just quick follow, follow, whatever. There has to be, you have to invest time into their, into how they've created culture. And to me, that was really exciting. So, well, you might get a few no's. It doesn't really matter because you've just thought, okay, and most people reply very sweetly, you know, I'm sorry, love to do a great project, but I'm really busy at the minute, you know. But you end up having to sort of read their book or you have to read their blog or you have to go and buy a comic that they've done or, and that, that is fantastic. I think in a way that's what's reflected in the book and that idea of that pairing. So ideally what you, people, when, when they would look at the book, will look at the, the bibliographies at the back, find out a little bit more. And that journey ideally just keeps going on, you know, and I think that idea of building that network, the community, because technically it's what would happen. You know, if you go on a march or if you go to sort of a, a radical book fair, or if you go to a conference, people just do that, don't they? You end up moving around different groups, talking to people and, you know, affiliating with people you quite like the sound of and then moving away from others but ideally that's the that's the really exciting bit about it encouraging people to find those sort of culture creators from the from the left there right there and there's you know millions of them out there it was also um, quite important i think from the very beginning that you know like it wasn't about you know our it wasn't about our own political stance in a way it was like you know we gave light and breadth of you know um and, and respect to everybody's political stance on the left, whether that be anarchist, communist, socialist, anything in between. You know, we're not saying we're this. We're, you know, we're, we're kind of coming from the position of like, I'd live under that kind of, any one of those systems quite happily rather than what we've got. I ain't going to argue with you guys. I want to argue with those guys. And it's kind of, you know, so we've got like a really broad range of voices that, you know, from who believe in different things. And, and, and we've brought them together under into one format and hopefully people can read those things and kind of say oh, yeah we have a lot more in common here like you know it's because we we kind of do you know whereas sometimes you know the left can have a bit of a I, you know a disagreement on like oh, i want it this economically way and oh but i want this and then there's a clash and i think well i'd have that way or that way i don't care like you know they they both <laughs> make much more sense to me than what we've got like you know so yeah that was quite important i think when it called them like you know to to have a really, really broad range of left voices and what people believe in, as well as the the, the diversity of culture creation. Um, yeah, I mean, to unite on the sort of differences is it is really is really is really important. I think because the right do it all the time. You know, the right argue with themselves and then they come out almost really strongly, don't they? With one position, we are doing this. This is what we believe in. Yeah, you know, and it becomes like that. And I think sometimes you look across at the left and everybody's just too busy fighting with each other about something or other. You're thinking, well, you. If you if you're going to do this, you're going to lose it. People haven't got the time to listen to your intricate article about it. What do you actually mean? How do you get it out there? Um, and I think sometimes that's that's the beauty of it. You have 50 sort of people writing, 51 people writing stories, but within those stories, there's another 51 different aspects, isn't it? So even the idea with the Muppets, isn't it? I mean, I was a bit like, what? What? <laughs> what is that? What's that? 
what's that got to do with that? You know, um, we, we had that with a few. It was a bit like, what, what's he talking about? How's that? And then, and then you go and then you reassess your own, um, I suppose, attitude to that. Because I mean, I was never a huge fan of the Muppets. It always came on the Muppets. I thought about a sort of a Sunday, right. a re- really weird time in Belfast. Did I was a little bit like, oh, it's this is sort of dead time. I've got to go to school tomorrow, but I'll, I'll watch it anyway. And then you, and then you go, so it, it places it. But then you would go back and say, oh yeah, okay, maybe this, yeah, okay, I get that. Um, and I think that's that was the beauty of the stories. Those just those coming in and just going, okay, you can frame culture from that sort of perspective. I mean, yeah, that's the that was the beauty of them. I mean, just the really. We thought we'd written, and we said this, you know, we said this all the way through. We we thought we'd written a really tight brief that we knew exactly what we'd get back, only to get the first five back and go, oh my god, we haven't done that before. <laughs> uh, um, uh, and and that again, and in the end, we were a bit like, well, what do we do? Do we just go back and go, oh, do you change this? We mean this, and then we just said, no, we're just gonna we're just gonna take them. Yeah, yeah um, and in the end, it's, yeah, yeah, that was the beauty of it. I think as a pro- as a project, I have to say this though, that just to just to counter counterbalance uh, Colin's dislike for the Muppets, love the Muppets. Um, I have like a, I have like a, I just I like didn't, I just didn't get it. Six year old Muppet uh, Kermit the Frog sat at home in my studio that I got given and was my kind of like little teddy bear toy that I carried around with. Anyway, it got nicked when I was about ten, and my mum found an equivalent in a. Um, in a shop in Norfolk and you know it was an original Muppet you know original Kermit so she got it about 10 years ago and, I, and she gave it me back and you know so it's been a kind of prominent figure in my you know kind of you know, kind of youth and stuff Kermit the Frog and the Muppets but yeah for me, I love Dr. Teeth actually I think Dr. Teeth's my favorite character oh, but, um, yeah. um, but Dave who did your piece you know he kind of comes down from London and he'll stop at mine like where he, he did a couple of days teaching he's like oh Kermit I've got a Kermit too so when you come back with this story, there was two illustrators in the country that was like, there was perfect for this story. So I kindly gave it to Dave, like, because, you know, it's kind of... That's amazing. Is it for me or him for the Yeah, because so I'm reading uh, Jim Henson's biography by Brian J. Jones, which I'd highly recommend, but his ethos is so community-led and it's so about creating art for art's sake. And it's, and it's so... Uh, it's funny because he never sort of classed himself politically, which I think I, I wrote about, but he... But it's it, there's it's so much of how he believed is what I would consider sort of left wing ideology to be, um, and it's really. But but it's it's interesting uh, you say it, Connor. Kind of like, were, were there any other apart from mine? Were there any others that really surprised you and just uh, kind of threw you when when they arrived? I mean, I know there's ones in there about like Japanese spirits. There's one about getting a tube pass, which I thought was fascinating. You know, and and, and I wonder if there are any that have particularly influenced you since you've read them as well. I. I don't. Know, I think. I, well, I think the one that I, I find quite strange is what Rachel Collette's News from Nowhere, and I, I think not even clocking that William Morris had written that book. And I mean, she writes about it in being the um, the radical bookshop in Liverpool, which, you know, I know that bookshop really well. Um, and then I never ever thought about the book. I think how how come I've got this long without reading that? You know. So you know, I've got. I've already. I just ordered a copy. I was a bit like, you know, it's a. And I think sometimes it's sometimes it's not even the ones that surprise you. It's like. How have I missed that in all this time? What I've been, what have I been looking at? And I think that that to me, I think was yeah. I was a bit like, okay, um, I better go and read that because I need to. It's been presented in a way that you know. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna take it on hold and read it. And how about you, Phil? I don't know what Phil thought about. Um, I mean, one of the things that I think, like you know, was was great, and, and, and we, like Colin says, we wrote this brief and we thought, yeah, we're going to get this back and that back, and and there were kind of lots of surprises, but. There were one. There's one piece by uh, 
uh, Steve Presence, and I just highly recommend anybody, you know, especially what's going on with the strikes this, uh, you know, this this summer and called Harlan County. Um, what a documentary, you know, of the uh, U.S. miners. And I don't want to do any spoiler alerts, but I, you know, if you if you could write, you know, if any filmmaker could write a fictional story that has all these kind of twists and turns in it, they've done a fairly decent narrative. So it's a it's a documentary, and it is absolutely brilliant. Like it's so so worth watching. And like, if you want to see people stand up and stand up for their communities, that what a what a community Harlan County were, you know, like when they stood up against the uh, the coal miners' uh, owners and stuff. It's uh, I mean, it's, it's it's just inspiring. And anybody who's going out on strike, who might be kind of watching, you know, or listening to your podcast, then and I'd say go and watch Harlan County because it's, it's you know, it's, it's, they were they were, you know, really brave, really brave. The threats and That's stuff. Right. I, I haven't got to that uh, portion of ref coach yet, so I'm going to add that to my list. I keep it is the only downside. As I said, I have enough time to read, and I keep reading it. Again. I really want to read that book now. I haven't I haven't read that one before. And it's like, yeah, yeah. oh no, even more things to add to my pile that I don't have yeah. time to. But uh, it's very exciting. What What do you think? And I suppose what, what do you hope that the impact of uh, releasing left cultures will be? Um, one of the things that we've kind of found from it uh which is you know the surprise of the story but the surprise of where things have gone um has been like you know kind of once the ball starts rolling with culture you don't know where it's going to stop or is it going to be a snowball or, or or whatever and um the great banner maker ed hall kind of you know kindly said he'd, he'd tell us his story and um you know i don't know if you've got around to reading his story yet but he was an architect in uh lambeth council building you know kind of uh, social housing and the leader of the Labour Party there was a guy called uh, Ted Knight. And he kind of told his story and made a banner. And sadly, uh, Ted Knight kind of uh, passed away during COVID. And they had um, uh, a memorial march through Norwood Cemetery to scatter his ashes like uh, a couple of weeks ago. And they took the banner there. And, they, you know, Corbyn were there and McDonnell and, and, and Simon Hanna. Uh, and they all gave a speech and they kind of scattered his ashes and drew a hammer and sickle on the ground because he was kind of one of the you know, um, uh, councillors that went up against Thatcher and, and denied the rate cuts and stuff. And that's amazing to think that, you know, that what you've commissioned as a kind of story and a piece of artwork then goes on to have another life. And it's going on a lot of picket lines um, throughout the summer, uh, is the banner, and then it's going into the London Museum. Um, so that kind of is really kind of you know, exciting, I think, from a position of like, you know, when you get somebody to, you know, kind of, make culture where does that go what does that do and what does that impact do and that, and that in a way is to be seen yet that in a way is, you know will it or not we don't know but we're certainly excited to kind of find out and we're hoping the lexicon will build and there'll be certainly a second edition down the line at some point and build the lexicon so we're kind of hoping that might happen um, and I, you know, I know you sort of mentioned earlier obviously you're talking about how it is important for especially sort of creatives to kind of lend our time to each other and, and that's you know part of the spirit of how we kind of counter the the culture that we have now but you know for for people that don't have time who, who are creative or in fact some of our listeners who might, I, I think everyone could be creative but for the sake of it if they aren't creative or if they aren't art people you know how how can they make art more accessible to people you know what you've done I think is a brilliant thing but how, how do other people go ahead and do that and and or in fact find ways to to make art accessible even to themselves hmm. It's a big question, question. 
I, I suppose the thing sometimes is you, you in a way when when I think sometimes art, well, from a sort of an art design, it can be a difficult thing to get into if you don't know anything about it. If you know, galleries operate on very sort of you know white walls, closed doors, and I know they're desperately trying to be inclusive in whatever way, but they're not really run by anybody who you know they're run really by. I suppose a, a lot of reasonably um, middle class, you know, um, people who understand sort of middle class approaches to culture. And I think, you know, what you've got throughout you know, the country, I mean, there are loads of sort of grassroots sort of community projects, arts organisations that are doing something. And I think there's a, there needs to be a way sometimes of, of removing the sort of the barriers between those two types of organisations to make sure that it's accessible for everybody. Because um, I think a lot of people will go through that grassroots, but they will still be put off by the more traditional sort of gallery format. Because I think within some of those gallery formats, there is a, a bit of a sneering down at you know what's not real art. Um, and I think you get that often with even the subjects between sort of illustration and you know drawing and painting and fine art. You know, it's not real. It's not you know. Um, and I think that, you know, again, that's a little bit like, you know, sort of the left in fighting all the time. There's a lot. It's like, what, what are we what are we worried about? You know, what are you worried about? If you like music, just go and make some music and, you know, support those types of places that you can that these activities can take place in. That's yeah, I think from the from a, you know, somebody who doesn't really necessarily want to be involved or whatever isn't very good. If you can support them in some way or, you know, um, or advocate for them, then it's then it's, it's probably what you um, it's probably a way in because it's. They're pretty close shop, isn't it? I think. The, um, um, my old tutor, when I was studying illustration, said to me, he said, one of the great things about illustration is it's on the streets. And my first ever job I did as an illustrator is I illustrated the front cover of The Big Issue. And I were living at my mum and dad's and I had to get a bus into Manchester and it was, it was 35 miles away and about 35 hours away on this bus. I mean, it was like, you know, it's kind of up, up dale and down dale to get in and stuff. And I, I, the bus was going into Manchester and I saw it there on the street in a homeless person's hands. And I thought, he's right. It's on the street. So he lives and breathes, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, within a bookshop, you wouldn't call that on the streets, but it's just off the street. So, you know, you kind of, you know, artwork and illustration and visual communication is all around us all the time. And, and you know, you know, there's, um, we have public places that we're allowed to create in all, all over this place. You know, it's not like illegal or anything. So, you know, we had a bunch of students in the last module we ran who laser cut all these bottles and they found all these statistics and made these illustrations on them and these kind of hanged it from this tree. So it became like this, you know, project. And they were made, you know, it was a complete serendipity thing where they were just all spinning in the wind. But all these people were walking past through the park and coming and reading these bottles and, you know, kind of, finding out about plastic pollution and things like that. And you kind of think, well, you know, they were absolutely buzzing. You know, the class was buzzing, they were buzzing, they'd done something and got a reaction from it. So in a way, like, yeah, you know, the, I don't want to say art galleries are the right, but, you know, they, they are uh, not inclusive in any way, you know, in terms of accessibility or skill levels or, 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 or the way it's discussed. But the streets are ours, like, you know, so like mm. we can take them over and we can put out whatever we want. And, yeah. you know, within the book, Matt Bonner, who kind of um, kickstarted the Trump, uh, Trump blimp, you know, and mm. how big an impact did that make? But, you know, so it's kind of, you know, I mean, he's, he's a, you know, uh, helps out in Dog Section Press and, you know, they, they make Gold Magazine, which is an anarchist newspaper that goes, that gets sold by homeless people and things. And, you know, so 
Yeah, without uh, taking uh, too much uh, inspiration from Richard Hawley, you know, the streets are ours, like, aren't they? So, you know, so we can we can take them over. It's it's fine. So it's, but also, you know, <laughs> like zine cultures and, and, and you know, they're, they're not, you know, they're, they're for everybody to have a go at, like, in a way, you know, you can say what you want within those printed pages. You know, it's the same on, you know, digital publication or whatever, you know, they're quite cheap. So I think there are ways to go around it. Posters, you know, I mean, they're, you know, you can print one off of 5p from the shop, you know, so yeah, we don't have to rely on the institutions. We can do, we can do it ourselves. You know? That's great. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Um, and, and, you know, you, you've, you've mentioned a few uh, there, but apart from yourselves and obviously left cultures, are there any particular sort of groups or campaigns or sources that, you, that you'd recommend listeners go to who, who are the people that you go to at the moment for kind of inspiration or, or for information, you know, where do you go? I suppose I've always thought. I mean, I, I mean, I always. I mean, I think I think the radical bookshops, you know, are, are the, for me they're the best sort of places in which I always I got the majority of all my sort of information from, and which sort of almost, you know, they they become the references that you see. So you, you go into a bookshop, you see something, then you find out something else about it, you know. So there's, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's quite a lot of them at the minute. But I mean, there's always the freedom, you know, the freedom shop in, in Whitechapel. The, there's a really great info shop, sixty fifty six A, I think it's called in Elephant and Castle, which is great. It's got books, zines. Again, it's really small. It's a bit dingy, you know. It feels like you're walking into somewhere that's actually, you know, as Phil uses the term, almost like they're fizzing with stuff. It feels a bit like, oh wow, look at this, something's happening in here. You know, it's not that corporate shininess, you know. So. Uh, I, I love stuff like that on archive. I mean, Mayday Room Archives in London. I mean, it's just got the most incredible archive of sort of left wing, you know, left wing communist anarchist material. You know, they, you can really source the tradition in there. If you go there and have a look through their material, you know, you know that you're, you know, you're not alone, and you can build on what you've got, and you take your stuff. I mean, so I tend to sort of like stuff like that. I think those those types of physical spaces again remind me of those, you know, marches or events where you've got physical stuff in your hands these are these are these are proper connections with it i mean it's all online as well there's loads of stuff like that but i think the physicality of going to somewhere is, is, a, is a real um you know it, it, it makes a that, that makes the big difference i think to me you know in terms of how you how you gather that content and how you pass it on to you know because there's always a story attached to it um you know when i was done i did some work in the mayday rooms and a guy called ed emery who's there who's um uh sort of a and he's, he was a, I suppose he's sort of, I suppose he's an, an anarchist. He did a lot of work on the, um, he's got the whole archive of this, of the fate strikes in Italy. Um, he translated a lot of the sort of the anarchist um, literature from Italian into English. Um, I think he walked out of his Cambridge exam. And I went in there one day and he was just in there <clears throat> showing me books that they'd, they'd, they'd um, of um, songs that they made in the hitch block that he'd managed to get a hold of and he's just telling you this stuff and you're like well, how did you get that where did you do that and it's just boxes after boxes and i think you know when you, i think when you get that when you get exposed to that that's all you're trying to do is you're just trying to hear all the people's mm -hmm. stories um but it's providing an environment in which you can do that which i think is, you know it's far better in person than it is online um, phil i think um, when you you know one yeah. of the things about maybe lockdown and, and COVID is you know a lot of things online but um and accessible now from your you know your, your your living room to go and listen to a lot of lectures and you know um but definitely engaging in lecture series is is, is really valuable I think I think a lot of maybe a lot of uh, creative people are more in, you know more interested in maybe the physicality of making something or listening to a conversation rather than reading and things like that a little bit I mean that might be a bit you know kind of putting people in boxes but 
so going to lectures is, is I've always found really valuable um, hearing people speak about you know the left and their projects and stuff um, I think that you know kind of you know you can't make a you know you can draw the best you know tree or car or whatever you want to do but if you haven't got the content to back it up and the understanding of the subject that skill set of drawing doesn't go anywhere so you know kind of you know you have to engage on the on the content level what, what it is you're trying to communicate uh, so you know when you think about where the inspiration comes from you know listening or finding people who are speaking around a subject making it clear uh, whoever that might be is, I think is always really useful uh, for myself anyway learning about you know left-wing ideas and left-wing theory sure yeah that was Phil and Colm, and what a lovely chat with them. You should, of course, head straight to leftcultures.com and grab yourself a copy immediately. It is £12 plus postage and entirely worth all of that money, and I'd say more. You can't actually give them more. You can only pay that money, but, you know, this bargain, isn't it? Um, get it, read it, be inspired by it, bother all the artists uh, that have drawn things for it on how to get the prints of them. Um, you can also find Phil's own website at philrigglesworth.com and his Beneficial Shock mag, which is a fully illustrated movie magazine, is at beneficialshock.com. Uh, Colin runs the brilliant socialcommentating.com um, and that's common, C-O-M-M-O-N-tating. Um, just go there, just go there, have a look and enjoy it. I have many times, it's brilliant. I know that I say this every week now, um, but when this returns, I will try to have more interviews on the podcast. Who knows if that will happen or if everyone will just have emigrated from the UK by that point anyway. But if there is someone you think I should talk to or at least try to get to talk to or an issue I've not covered in ages or at all, then hit those keys like they're the QWERTY tattooed face of an enemy. Well, that's a bit violent. Sorry. Tap those keys like they're the QWERTY tattooed face of an enemy who will get really annoyed at the tapping and send me an email at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And that's it for the Partly Political Broadcast for, um, well, summer, really. You go away and enjoy everything uh, being on fire or wet or somehow both, uh, all while trying to find things for your kids to do that isn't swimming or that wanky fire poi circus thing, or avoiding kids while they are constantly swimming and doing that wanky fire circus poi thing at the same time. I'm sure you're going to have a very lovely time. But of course, this show will return in September, and to prep others for when it does, why not tell them to give this a go and subscribe so that when it comes back, they'll have forgotten what it is and delete it all over again throw a few quid to the Kofi or patreon pages if you can to keep me um afloat again possibly literally and maybe even give this podcast a nice five-star review on places where you can do that and not say someone's dinner table or on a hamster big thanks to Acast, my brother last skeptic and cat day and this will be back in september when as her first promise as prime minister liz truss will declare england stop using directions or compass points and that way she won't be the only person that's able to get lost in a square room with a single door in it Bye. This week's show was sponsored by Dover Q Getaways. Tired of the tedium of travelling? Sick of arriving somewhere and they don't speak English because, you know, they're not in England. Hate that nowhere else smells quite like that comforting whiff of your unwashed car? Try Dover Q Getaways. For the simple price of petrol, you can spend weeks on the M20 motorway for absolutely nothing. Witness the beautiful sights of a lack of service stations, the central reservation, other bored-looking people in their cars, and if you're super lucky, a lorry driver having a shit behind a bush. When your kids ask, are we there yet? You can proudly say, no, and we never will be. Dover Q Getaways for the ultimate staycation. (laughs) 
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.